got Jesus praying, um, knowing that he's going towards his death and he's praying for his disciples. John 17, 14. I have given them your word and the wor world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Father, give us receptive hearts and minds this morning as Andy comes to speak. I pray that you bless the preparation that he's put in um, and help him to say the things that you want him to say. Um, help us to be humble in receiving the challenge that we need to or the encouragement that we need to this morning. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. I uh, hope you've had a good summer so far. And uh, there are probably times when everybody's felt that they don't quite fit into situations. And uh, my experiences being from Edinburgh go back quite a long way. When I first came to Birmingham and had this experience, I thought I'd fit in very easily. And uh, one of my first Sundays here in Birmingham as a postgrad student um, opened to my eyes to some of the cultural differences and challenges that there are in life. And I was pretty hungry. It was about eight o'clock in an evening. I thought, I'll keep it simple, I'll just go to the chip shop. You can't really go wrong in a chip shop. You know, wherever you go in, uh, in the UK, chip shop's a fairly standard issue, uh, not a problem. So I queued up, and to my delight, a Birmingham chip shop looked very, very similar to an Edinburgh chip shop. This was going well for me, how wrong I was. And uh, I, could, I went in, I could see the chips, I could see the fried food, I could see the paper that you wrap it all in at the end, it all looked pretty similar. So I went up, got to my place in the queue, and was asked what I wanted. So I simply asked for a very simple thing, my favorite, a smoked sausage supper. This guy just looked blankly at me. He had no idea what I was talking about. Um, and I thought, oh, I've got to really think about this. So I toned down the accent a little bit. I slowed it down and said very slowly, a smoked sausage supper. <laughs> And uh, so in Edinburgh, a supper, it just means with chips. So you can have a single fish or you can have a fish supper. That's fish and chips. So fish supper, sausage supper, haggis supper, whatever you want, you can do it in Scotland. And uh, so there I was. So I thought, okay, maybe he doesn't understand that bit. So I'll go for a smoked sausage and chips because I could see the chips. I could see the smoked sausages. Still blank. No idea what I was looking at. I could see five smoked sausages in the fried food department of this chip shop, okay? And so I eventually just said, can I have one of them with some of them? And uh, <laughs> I got something. I said, what is that called if it's not a smoked sausage? He says it's called a saveloy. A saveloy? I thought that was cream that you rubbed on sorbets. <laughs> Whatever you call it, I'll have one of those. Um, and I said, so, and plenty of sauce. He looked at me again, blankly, sauce? We do vinegar? I'm like, oh, come on, surely you do sauce. Edinburgh, again, famous for half vinegar, half sauce. It's brown, it's amazing, oils the whole lot, and it's fantastic. But anyway, not to be here. Uh, so I eventually got my, my smoked sauce, my Savoy and chips with some vinegar on, got to the payment, gave him two pound notes, and again, he just looked at me blankly. Um, I said, this is sterling, this is real money, honest. But it wasn't to be, so I eventually had to uh, find another way of paying on that occasion. <laughs> so anyway, many of us will find ourselves in times when we think, do we really fit in here? Do I quite fit? I don't quite fit into this situation. Maybe you're part, from part of the world, 
uh, and, uh, or part of the country or from a different background and there's just times when you're not sure whether you really fit into that. And as we look at this question today, there's really two answers to the question, do we fit? The first question is, no, we don't, um, as we've read, but also there's a, the answer is yes, we because we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. In the world, but not of the world, um, as, as uh, Kirsty read to us. And there's three, at least three New Testament understandings of the word world. There's a sense in which there's the created world, the physical world, God made the world, and, uh, and everything in it, uh, part of universal creation. There's the sense of the world being humankind, being people. We're to love the world, for God so loved the world, we love our uh, we love others, we're to love our neighbours, and we're to love our enemies. We're to love every single person in this world. And yet there's also a third meaning, which is the world system. The world system, that invisible spiritual uh, system that is opposed to God, that's opposed to Jesus in all ways. And so John also writes, do not love the world or anything in it, um, as in the sense of the world system. That sense of worldliness, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of our eyes, the boasting of what we have and of what we do, um, as John puts it. And so Jesus prays, do not take them out of the world, out of humankind, but protect them from the evil one and the ways of the world. And so there's a call on all of our lives into the world, but we're not to compromise uh, how we live in relationship to that. So here's the thing. We may not feel at times like we fit in this world, or we live as strangers, as aliens, as the New Testament puts it, but we do fit into the plans of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God. In fact, every single one of us has got a part to play, whoever you are, uh, whatever stage of life you're at. And what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on the story of Esther in the Old Testament. And if you've got your Bible, if you want to follow it uh, on your gadgets or whatever, feel free to do that. We're going to look at the first eight verses. I'm going to just basically tell you the story of Esther and kind of re-relate it to us this morning and see what we can draw from that. And there are four key characters in the study. There's King Xerxes. There's Esther herself, uh, the young Jewish girl. There is Haman. Um, and there's Mordecai. They're the four folks we're going to look at. King Xerxes is a guy with incredible power and position, but he is somebody who is of the world. Um, He's someone of the world, and he misuses that position and that power for selfish means because he serves the world system in that sense. Esther is an in has incredible physical beauty. And she's also faced with the choice of using that for her own worldly gains or for God's kingdom purposes. Haman um, is another guy who is, uh, kind of serves the world and his own gains and the world system, anti-God system, if you like. While Mordecai is very much in the world, but not of the world, um, the Jewish uh, kind of hero um, um, in this. And every single one of us has the choice to either serve God's purposes with our lives and find our fit with his plans and with his people, or to serve our own purposes and fit in with the world in which we find ourselves in. And so we search either for acceptance with the world, or we find acceptance with God. So King Xerxes has this massive kingdom, 
He has the whole of, from Asia Minor down into Africa, across northern India, 127 provinces, it tells us uh, in chapter 1. He was immensely powerful, but he didn't have a good character to go with that. He wanted to show off this incredible greatness that he had and all his wealth and all the rest of it, but he's quite weak in character. And the story starts with the king throwing a 180-day party, 186-month banquet, this unbelievable party that he throws because he wants to display, as it says in verse 4, his vast wealth of his kingdom. And then he throws another party for the whole city, and he invites the whole city, and there's a free bar for everyone. You can drink without restraint for the entirety uh, of that, that party. And uh, when he's in high spirits with wine in verse 10, he sends for his queen, Queen Vashti, and he now wants to show off his ultimate possession, his wife, the queen. And so because... He wants to do that. He doesn't want to show off any of her inner qualities that she obviously has, um, but in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But perhaps not surprisingly, she says, no way. There's no way that I'm going to parade myself in front of a city full of drunks who've been drinking from a free bar for seven days. There's, there's no way I'm going to do that. And you might expect him to realise that he's put her in a pretty awkward position, but no, he's furious. He is so angry with her, uh, verse 12, and, uh, because she has threatened his desire, his desire for his purposes of impressing the nation. In a world that says popularity reigns, popularity is the most important thing, and she's challenged that and made him look weak. And that provokes, as it always does, that sense of anger and emotional response in him. And so the system, if you like, is now against her. She now no longer fits in because she's challenged something in the world system of somebody's thinking. So Xerxes turns to his state advisors because he can't control the queen. And if word gets out, then it's going to be a nightmare because none of the wives are going to listen to any of the husbands. Oh, what would happen? And his concern here isn't for justice, but it's for his image control. What does he look like? How does he appear? And so they advise him to get a new queen um, because they want to fit in. They want to fit in with him. They don't want to challenge him. And so they say, well, get a new queen. And he thinks, oh, this is a great idea. And we'll, we'll help you make this kingdom be all about you. And so he then turns not to his advisors, but to his personal attendants. They're the bodyguards. They're the testosterone-filled young lads who protect him. And he says, well, what do you think? How do you think I should find a new queen? So you can imagine what their ideas are. And their number one idea is hold a Miss World competition or a Miss Persia competition and get somebody, get the best women from every province, all 127, to attend and to, you can pick them. But you've got to give them some pretty rigorous beauty treatments as well before you get there. And then the winner, and you choose king, becomes his ultimate trophy wife in this. Now I know it is hard to believe there really was a time when people were so superficial we find it really difficult to think that as a human race we ever stooped so low, but it's here in the book. So that's uh, King Xerxes. Now Esther, she's one of the contestants, a young Jewish woman who's been adopted and parented by Mordecai. And uh, we're told that she was lovely in form and features, chapter 2, verse 7. She's got a great figure. She's beautiful. She makes it to the final. Um, but she first has to get ready. And most of us have gone out at some point in our lives and we get ready before we go out. I don't know if you're someone who takes a lot of time to get ready or not a lot of time. 
Um, there may be someone in your family who takes an extensive amount of time to get ready. I wouldn't want to pick on anyone, but um, that may be the case. There are some people who seem to spend more time getting ready than they were actually out for, but we won't go into that. By any standards, this is a long prep time. This is not hours, this is not days, 12 months. That is pretty serious. I mean, that is a lot of pressure for a first date as well. And if somebody's not going to like you after 12 months of getting ready, it's probably never going to happen, is uh, my guess there. But Esther, with her elegance, with her modesty, wins a contest and she becomes a new queen. So the king throws another party. And it looks like Esther's mission is simply just to be arm candy for the king. That is all she's there for, the looks, to be the most beautiful woman uh, in the world. Um, and he has her, but not so. In comes Haman in chapter 3 into this story. And he is King Xerxes' chief of staff. He's a strong leader. In many ways, he's stronger than Xerxes himself. But he's also filled with serving himself and the ways of the world. And he is so angry because there's one guy who will not worship him, who will not kneel before him. And this guy is this chap, Mordecai, Esther's cousin and her adoptive parent. And so Haman is so offended... He goes to the king and he offers him a huge bribe. This is millions of pounds, possibly billions. It's hundreds of tons of silver. It's like an international level payment. And all he wants is to be allowed to destroy Mordecai and Mordecai's people. And so the king basically says, yeah, whatever. In fact, you can keep the money, just, you know, whatever you want. He doesn't really even know who this guy is, who these people are. He doesn't really care at all because it doesn't seem to affect him. And if it doesn't affect him and his purposes, then you can be as selfish as you like because um, it doesn't bother me. And that is his attitude in here. So then in chapter four, we find Mordecai comes into the story. And word of the treachery comes to Mordecai. And he realizes there is only one person possible who can change the king's mind about this and save the whole of Israel, the whole of God's people, and that is Esther, who is now the queen. So God's plan to save the entire nation of Israel, the entirety of God's people, and for his ultimate plan of Jesus to come through them, now rests in the very well-moisturized hands of Esther. Okay? This is the plan. And um, God reveals his mission for Esther through the words of Mordecai, this wise, this trusted spiritual parent, really, uh, in her life. And he says in chapter 4, verse 8, you must go to the king and you've got to change his mind. And uh, she is not keen. She's really, really not keen. She sends a reply that says, don't you realise to approach the king without him asking is a capital offence. Okay, I will die if he doesn't ask for me to come. And even if he does let me speak, I'm not sure he's going to be that happy with what I've got to say, which is you're not really doing your job very well. I disagree completely with where you're going with this. Because, you know, we all know Xerxes has got a fantastic history with previous wives challenging him. You know, not, not very good um, when it comes to wife defying. And the other little glitch, she says, is that he hasn't asked for me for 30 days. So I'm kind of guessing this is not, he's not in the most devoted husband type mentality at the moment. Um, I honestly don't think this is the best time. But Mordecai doesn't back off and he challenges her. Chapter 4, verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So basically, if the Jews get wiped out, Esther, you're one of them. And he'll find out, and you go as well. But perhaps you've been positioned strategically for this time. He names what her call now is, what her real mission is in all that has happened. You're not here, he's saying, to fit in and have a comfortable life. You're not here to accumulate an amazing wardrobe and the best set of jewels and have the best perfumes going. Okay? You are not here to be the most desirable, attractive, applauded woman in the whole of the kingdom and on the front of Hello magazine or whatever. You are not at this point for any of the reasons that the king thinks, but to work for justice and to save your people from great suffering. To oppose a man who has seriously crossed the line and is very, very powerful. You don't fit in his world. You don't fit in his world. But you do fit into the plans of God, into the purposes of God, and into the people of God. This is your call at this time. And you've got a choice. You can fulfill that call or you can compromise with the world. But don't let your success in the world's eyes blind you to what God says your call really is, what your fit really looks like. And the Bible is full of characters who didn't fit into their world and yet found themselves fitting with God's purposes for their lives. We think of Joseph. Joseph didn't fit in his family. His brothers abandoned him, abandoned him for dead. And yet Joseph doesn't hold it against them. He doesn't kind of become vengeful but he forgives them and eventually finds himself bringing great salvation to his family as he serves God's call. We think of uh, the book of Ruth and again she she moved with her mother-in-law to another culture. She didn't fit and yet God provided for her and God brought acceptance with his people uh, to her as she fitted into his purposes and his people. We think of Daniel who finds himself in Babylon. He didn't fit there with a, a despot of a ruler but he chooses not to compromise, chooses not to fit in with the world system, if you like, but to fit with God's purposes and with God's plans for the sake of God's people. We think of Mary, Jesus' mother, again, who is, has the scandal of a pregnancy out of wedlock. And yet she says this, she says, may it be to me according to your word. May it be to me according to your word. She surrenders her dreams, she surrenders her reputation to serve God's plans. And there are also plenty of characters in here who caved in. Adam and Eve are the obvious ones. Think of Solomon later on in his life. We think of Judas. Um, Lots of characters that just collapsed with it as well. But here Esther has a huge, huge challenge and a choice. So she tells Mordecai that she wants three days to think about it, to pray about it, to fast about it. Actually, not to think about it. She's made a decision, but she knows in her own strength and her own beauty and her own charm and all the rest of it, that is not enough. But we need God to move here. And so she wants three days to fast and pray with her friends um, because she thought her greatest prize was being queen, but now that prize is turned into a burden and and a responsibility. It requires sacrifice, maybe even death. And she knows she needs strength beyond herself. 
And she says to Mordecai, can you get the people of God to pray and to fast for three days? And then she says this with great courage. She says, when this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Stunning words that she's come to that change in her heart. There's a depth now to Esther that we see. She probably didn't even know was there. And very often it's the challenges in our lives that bring that out of us. There is probably a depth in each one of us that we have not yet seen yet um, that awaits the challenge um, that might come into our lives. You know, for those who choose not to fit in to the world and the temptations around, but choose to fit with God's purposes and fit with God's plans as we surrender ourselves to him. I think one of the, the biggest turning points in my life was when, uh, as, a, as a fairly new Christian, a couple of years in, I made that decision to get baptised. And that, for me, was that moment when I said, rather than avoiding all these awkward conversations about what it means to be a Christian and hiding the Bible under my jacket and, and all of that, actually, I, I want to I fit with God's purposes. I don't want to fit into the world's mould but I want to fit with God's purposes and plans. And so I got baptised in water as a way of declaring uh, to that, that I wanted to identify with God's people. I wanted to identify with this God that I knew. I wanted to die to the old me and die to the world and live for God. And that's a great way uh, to do that. And so Esther takes her life in her hands in chapter 5. And on the third day, she puts on the royal robes and she waits for the king. And no doubt her heart is pounding the adrenaline is, is pumping through her and she is incredibly nervous uh, as she does this. But the king finds favour with her and asks her what her request is. And even says to her, chapter 5, verse 3, that even if you want half the kingdom, I'll still grant your request. What is it? And although she realises that he says anything when he's in a good mood, but she's quite clever here. And so she delays the request and she invites him and her man to her party. And he loves parties, as we know. So he goes, has a great time, and he says, okay, great party, what, what is it you want? And uh, so she says, well, let me invite you to a banquet, uh, and then I'll tell you. So she he invites her, him and her man to her banquet, and then she says, I'll present the request to you. Again, very skillful negotiator. She's a bright cookie, she's courageous, and she's got perfect timing that doesn't rush into things, but waits for the right moment. Meanwhile, her man heads off home and he's boasting about his great status with the king and with the queen and all this special treatment he's had. I've been invited, personally invited to these parties and I have great wealth and I have many sons and Buddy says there's one thing that still annoys me and that is this Mordecai guy. He's still alive. You know, I've got all of this but it still won't satisfy me until Mordecai is dead. He just wants to pursue wealth, more power, more status, more applause, more honour, and yet, even with all of that, he is not satisfied. That is the way of the world. His fit is always with the world and never with God. And he finds it ultimately to be empty and hollow um, and all of that. So they plan to build this huge set of gallows. It's about 75 foot high, I think it says, to hang Mordecai on. And that same night, the king can't sleep. The king is so restless, doesn't get a wink of sleep. And so he says to his attendants, he says, I want you to read to me the annals, my annals, okay, these great things, my great feats and all the rest of it, chapter six. So they start to read it to them. And then they do, they read about how this guy called Mordecai 
One saved them. Because back at the end of chapter 2, he uncovered a conspiracy which he made known through Esther. And so the king says, well, did we ever honour this guy? You know, did we ever give him personality of the year prize or anything? You know, what, what did we do? And he said, well, we didn't really do anything. At this very moment, Haman steps in, okay, with his burning anger and all the rest of it. And so the king says, oh, Haman, great, you've just here. What do you think I should do for um, the man that the king delights to honour? And so Haman's thinking, you know, schoolboy error, I must be the man. I must be the man the king delights to honour. Classic mistake. And so he says, well, well, king, he says, I think you should boy, give him royal robes. Yeah, dress him in royal robes. And I think you should put him on a horse and parade him round the whole city. In fact, give him a royal official that will walk him round the whole city. In fact, he says, you should put a crown on the horse's head. Let's go to town on this. And the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. And Haman's thinking, fantastic, fantastic. And then he's downfall. The bombshell hits. Oh, Mordecai's the man. What? <laughs> Mordecai? And he says, so would you be the royal official that would escort him around the city? <laughs> Talking about pride comes before a fall. It's disastrous. And so Esther holds another banquet. And now he makes her request to the king to save her people from this plot of annihilation. Annihilation, he says, who is this plotter? Says the king. Where is this man that would dare do such a thing? And Esther replies, well, this adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. So Haman ends up getting hanged on the gallows and Mordecai ends up getting the holy state. He gets everything and replacing Haman as the chief of staff. And then Esther gets the opportunity to get the king to revoke the decree that has gone out and to kill her people. In fact, she gets to write the document and he gives her his signet ring to seal it so it has that authority and therefore cannot be revoked beyond. And in fact, at the end of chapter 8, the very last sentence, we discover that many nationalities join them. They want to be Jews as well, <laughs> probably for the protection, I'm not sure. But they join as a result, chapter 8, verse 17. And this amazing story just teaches us a few simple but profound things. It teaches us that when we pursue worldly ways, when we seek to fit into the world system, it will ultimately destroy us. Okay, the things of the world cause darkness to grow in our hearts. It causes a destructive um, discontent to flourish within us. Now, Jesus put it like this, in, um, it's recorded in John 10.10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Ultimately, the one who loses when we pursue worldliness is us. That's what happens. On the other hand, it also teaches us that when we seek to fit with God's ways, with God's purposes, with God's people, we find life and we find blessing. That God is able to do the impossible in these situations. But always, always note there are temptations all the way along. All the way through there's a danger of getting too comfortable, to misuse our gifts, or to misuse our passion, or our position, or even the opportunities that we may get. Jeff Lucas recently very helpfully said this, he said, don't punish people with your passions. Your passions are good, but if they get a few degrees off, they can become idols in our lives. They become the only thing in our lives, and they quickly take us away from God's ways. 
because the pull of this world is strong. The heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things, writes Jeremiah 17 verse 9. But the story of Esther also teaches us that maybe where you are at the moment isn't accidental. Stage of life, situation, something at work, don't know, something in your family. As Mordecai put it, who knows, but that you may have come to your position for such a time as this. Okay, Esther didn't set out to be queen. She didn't put, you know, on her personal statement, I want to be queen at some point. Okay, she didn't have it in her private longings journal, planned for life. Okay, but once she was on the throne, she had to decide, do I hold on to this, uh, onto the safety of this, and the wealth of this, and the power of this, or do I push into what God has put me here for? The God-given purpose of saving her people, of serving God's people. And we often don't know ahead what God has positioned us for. But our choice is always, will we fit in with, fit into the world or will we fit with God's ways and God's purposes? You know, we, do we fit into the world or do we fit with God's ways and God's purposes? Even Haman could have. He could have used his wealth and position for, for just things and good things instead of self-gratification and the evil and anger that he had. King Xerxes could have ruled in a godly way rather than the shallow, self-gratifying way that he did. Every one of us has got a choice to fit in, which is the easy way, or to fit with all that God has for us. So the question is, what am, I, am I using what I have for God? Every one of us has got opportunity. Every one of us has got influence in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, in our universities, with our friends. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold, but let us uh, follow God. And sometimes we think, one day I'll do this. Maybe up there I'll do this. Maybe I'll be like that then. Um, but perhaps this is your time. Perhaps this is your time. I read recently, you don't get to choose your time. Your time chooses you. It can come as a surprise, but we have choices to make all the time rather than putting things off, all of that. You are where you are, for a reason. For some people, that might be decades. You think, oh, I've been, I've been here for a long, long time. But I'm always inspired by Jesus, who for three decades, nobody really knew who he was. 30 years incarnating himself before his ministry really began. Hey, that's a long time for someone like him, just being where he is for a time that has, has to come and for a key moment that might come. So there's a call on all of our lives. And the call is to be in the world, but not of the world. There's a call on all of our lives to fit with God's purposes and to fit with God's people and not compromise by fitting into the ways of the world.